words is like the righteousness of God is and um, kingdom of God, and there's a few others that would be uh, significant phrases. Okay. I found a new workaround to a problem tonight. I left my notes on my printer at home. For some reason, the printer here wouldn't print, so I emailed my notes to myself, and I'm using my iPhone for my notes. I know. In technology, wonderful. That way I didn't have to go back, drive back home and get my notes. So, okay. We ready, Eddie? Okay. Uh, Barb mentioned last time we, we, the assignment, uh, that's up on the website was to read through, where did I put the book? There it is. Read up through chapter 11 for last time. And so this time we should be reading for next time, should be reading through, um, 14, 12, 13, and 14. Those are short chapters. doesn't take that long uh, to go through there. Okay. Now, I'm going to go back to New American Standard here. What I want to talk about now, we talked about terms, and now we want to talk about how terms relate to one another, and this is structure. Structure is the second category when I started. I mentioned that uh, there are four elements in a biblical passage, terms, the relation of terms or an interrelation of terms, that structure, and third was the general literary form or forms of the passage, and fourth, the atmosphere. So I'm just looking at the second part now, the relations and interrelations uh, between the terms, and this is uh, what we'd call structure. A definition of structure in one sense, structure involves all of the relations and interrelations uh, which bind terms into a lit- literary unit. Now, I'm sure that y'all have as many fond memories of this as I do, but back in uh, probably maybe sixth grade, depending on the curriculum, seventh grade, eighth grade, we had we were introduced to the joys of diagramming sentences. And um, some people really took to that. A lot of people didn't take to that. I always got confused when you got down to the really nitty, you know, when you had a real complex um, compound complex sentence and you had to, and the diagrams were getting way out there unmanageable and what you did with certain terms, it just sort of uh, hung out there independently and some things like that. And I never quite got that resolved, even when we had to diagram sentences in Greek when I was in seminary. Um, but one of the things I learned long before I went to seminary was that in developing a uh, just just <clears throat> developing the structure is just to create what I call more of a general uh, phrase structure of a, of a verse. We'll go over that in a minute. And this is more of a uh, another sense in which you're just sort of uh, uh, structuring out or diagramming out the framework of the passage. And that's a lot easier for most people to grasp because it doesn't involve trying to identify every 
preposition and every article and every phrase and getting it in just the right location. But what it accomplishes the same thing, and that is that it helps us to lay out the structure of a, of a passage so that as we do that, we see things that weren't immediately uh, uh, apparent to us. And those of you who have been uh, in my um, Thursday night, is it Thursday night? Yeah, Thursday night Bible class in Romans 10, where I structured Romans 10, 9, and 10 as a chiasm uh, and showed that, therefore, because it's of the structure, that this clearly isn't talking about justification uh, justification at all. Let me just put that up on the so you see what I'm talking about. Just Romans 10, 9. Uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a p- person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, probably 99% of, of, of uh, evangelicals think that this has something to do with getting into heaven. And it, the context, the broad context, doesn't have anything to do with getting into heaven. Uh, the narrow context doesn't have anything to get, do with getting into heaven. And as you look at the key terms here, the, that would be the technical terms would be confess, believe, um, saved, uh, righteousness, uh, salvation. These, these are your, your, your technical terms. And when you trace out the use of the word saved or salvation in Romans, as I pointed out, Paul never uses the word saved or salvation as a synonym for justification. Uh, That is, we tend to use, in in evangelical language, we tend to use the word saved as, as what we call phase one salvation, what you have to do in order to make sure you go to heaven rather than the lake of fire. But Paul uses justification to describe that in Romans Salvation is usually referring to the the the, the results of, of of justification in a believer's life as they are applying the word. It's their spiritual growth, or maybe glorification, or the sum total of the whole process. So, if save never means justification, then we're not talking about what you need to do to get into heaven here. And otherwise, you end up saying that you have to do more than believe to get into heaven. You also have to make some sort of public confession. And nowhere else in the Scripture does it say that. This is when you start comparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, this first phrase, if you or clause, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the key term there is confessing with your with your mouth. Um, that's the first line. The next line, believe in your heart. This is the second line, and this would be what we call uh, a B, uh, B statement. And believe in your heart, Jesus raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved here doesn't refer to justification. It refers to some sort of deliverance in your spiritual life. That is parallel to, see, the, thir- the third line is what the heart a person believes. So, the second half of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10 are are the parallel lines in, in the middle of the chiasm. 
so that the first line of verse 10 is talking about the same thing as the second line of verse 9. If verse 9 is not talking about saved in terms of getting into heaven, then the righteousness here is an imputed righteousness. It has to do with uh, sanctifying righteousness or experiential righteousness. And uh, and so it, it, it's clear from the structure here that, that this passage isn't talking about getting into heaven at all. It's talking about how a believer is delivered from the wrath uh, of God, which is a major theme in in, in Romans. So that's just one example to give you uh, of, uh, of structure. A structure lays out the framework of a passage. And so what we do in structure is we look at a phrase or clauses and, and laying them out. Now, I'll just, since we have this verse up here, we'll just talk about the difference between a phrase and a clause. A phrase has a subject, I mean, excuse me, a clause has a subject and a verb. A clause has a subject and a verb. A phrase does not have, uh, does not have a verb. It might have a subject, but it doesn't have a verb. With your mouth, is that a clause or a phrase? That's a phrase. Uh, in your heart, phrase or clause? It's a phrase. Uh, if you confess with your mouth, is that a clause or a phrase? Phrase. No, that's a clause. It has a verb, confess. It has a subject, you. Is it an independent clause? Ah, now I'm getting tricky. No, it's not an independent clause because it can't stand alone. It is a dependent clause. It's a conditional clause. It's dependent if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So if that's an, that, that is a clause, but it's not an independent clause. Believe in your heart. Is that a clause or a phrase? Clause. The the verb is notice that the subject isn't stated. It's it's you, and you believe. A lot of times you'll have a uh, a subject. If it's a compound sentence, the subject may be left out, but it's understood from the context. You believe in your heart. That's a clause. Um, is it still a conditional clause? Yes. If you is still understood to be there, uh, that God raised him from the dead, is that a clause or a phrase? Yeah, in your heart is a prepositional phrase, but believe in your heart is a clause. If you, because it's it's technically fully if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead is that a clause or a phrase? That's a clause. It has a subject God, and it has a verb raised. Is it an independent clause? It is. That God raised him from the dead. No, it's not an independent clause because it's a it's a purpose clause. That for the purpose of something. If you believe in your heart, heart, and then it expresses what you're believing that God raised him from the dead. So it's still a dependent clause, but it's a clause. So have we found an independent clause yet? No, we've got 
two conditional clauses. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart, and then we have a uh, 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 really it's, uh, expressing the object of, of belief uh, that God raised him from the dead, and then you will be saved. Is that a clause or a phrase? That's a clause. It has a subject, you, and it has a verb, will be saved. Is it an independent clause or a dependent clause? Yeah, it's, it hangs alone. It's an independent clause. So what is verse 9 all about? You will be saved. That's the, that's the main, that's the independent clause. Everything else is describing some sort of condition or circumstance surrounding that, that main, uh, main clause, you will be saved. Then in verse 10, we read, for with the heart, a person believes. Is that a phrase or a clause? It's a clause. The verb is believe and the subject is person. Is it independent or dependent? It's dependent because it's it's explaining something. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Is that a clause or a phrase? That's a phrase. Uh, And with the mouth he confesses is a clause resulting in salvation. Phrase. No independent clause in that verse. So the whole thing is one sentence, 9 and 10. Actually, 9 takes us back to verse 8. Uh, all one sentence, and we have, but the main idea in 9 and 10 is you will be saved. Everything else relates uh, relates around that. So now, if we're looking at this verse, we have, uh, we'd also identify, I think we did this, uh, key terms that are there, technical terms, and so that's how we would structure that. Now let's go back and look at James. James 1, 2 through 4, I've already... You set this up in a, uh, Logos has a diagrammer here. And it's changed a little bit since the last time I used this. I used to use it or teach this a lot and haven't done it much recently. But we're going to look at, at the paragraph. So if we look at James, uh, James 1, I'm going to give you a little hint as you're reading through James. James 1, um, James 1.19 states the structure for the book. This is the key verse. It states the structure for the book. Now, that should help you when you're making some observations now as to how this relates to everything else that is said in James. As we pointed out last time, there's not a connective between 18 and 19. It's, It's a clean break. So we have to decide how does 1, 1 through 118 relate to 119. And in the structure of the book, 1, 1 through 18, 1, 1 through 18 is a, um, is the introduction. What's the function of the introduction to anything? It, 
Yeah, to acquaint you with the subject matter. It introduces you with the main thoughts, the main ideas that are going to be then developed within the body of the of the um, article, the epistle, or the book. So we're going to go back to to the beginning and to come to an understand uh, things. Now, when you're laying out the structure of a of a of a book in a Bible study, one of the things you should do is make a chart. And in that chart, you just go through, uh, take out a, a, a piece of paper, and you uh, put down all the paragraphs in the book. For example, in James 1.1 is your salutation. 1, 2 through 4 is a paragraph. 5 through 8 is another paragraph. 9 uh, 9 through uh, 11 is another paragraph. Notice the bold face type here. Uh, 12 to uh, 18 is another paragraph. And so as you're go- working your way through the book, what you would do is... Oh, i turn some of this off just a minute. Um, hmm... Kinds of stuff showing up here. Okay. Um, so as you go through the book, what you try to do is read through a paragraph and create a title for that paragraph, something that's short, something that just summarizes the elements there. Uh, if you can do it in two or three words, that's fine. Another approach would be to rewrite the paragraph in your own words. And then after you've rewritten the paragraph in your own words, then write a one-sentence summary of what's in that paragraph. That it helps you to, to think about what's in, that, what's in that paragraph. Now, that's something we can develop later on, but that comes only after you've done some of this detail work. So we, we look at a, uh, at a paragraph, two through four, and we're going to talk about how this is, is structured. So we're going to start off talking about a couple of things. First of all, the structure within a paragraph, and then we want to look at structures between paragraphs. So one of the things we want to do when we first approach uh, a passage is we want to look at those verses and we want to see um, how many sentences we have. Remember, the sentence is a basic unit of thought, and... um, that didn't get punctuation there, did it? Sentence is a basic unit of thought, and you organize sentences around a common theme that creates a paragraph. Now, how do you figure out where your sentences are? Look, look for the periods. Very good, John. You remembered from last time. You look for the periods. You count the periods. There's a period at the end of verse 2. There's a period at the end of verse four, uh, 5. Oh, wait a minute, excuse me, there's a period at the end of verse 3, so 2 and 3 are one sentence. There's a period at the end of verse 4, and uh, so you have two sentences in this paragraph. So what you want to do next is to identify uh, your, your clauses and your phrases. Okay, this is where we come back, uh, we'll work on verses 2 and 3 together. This is our... Um, Two, two and three 
is one sentence, so I'm going to take four here, and I think I can do this. Yeah, still works the same. And I'm going to drag it down here. So we're just going to work with verses 2 and 3. That's one, uh, one sentence. So we have um, um, what are our, uh, what's our first clause? Anybody want to guess? Consider it all joy. That's our first clause. And is uh, that going to be an independent clause or a dependent clause? It's independent. Very good. It's independent. It stands by its own, so it's independent. Then we have my brethren, which is an interjection or address. And then we come to the next part of the verse, which says when you encounter various trials. So is that a clause or a phrase? That's a clause. Is it dependent or independent? It's dependent. It expresses time. So you consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And then verse 3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So is this, is verse 3 a clause or a phrase? It's a clause. And is it independent or dependent? It's dependent What's it dependent on? Is it dependent on trials or is it dependent on joy? Joy. It's dependent upon joy. So what we want to do here is, see, if it were dependent on something in, in uh, when you encounter various trials, we would move it over to this position. But because it's related to joy, just as... Um, let me move it down here. When here is consider it when you encounter various trials. So we're going to move the when back because it's tied to consider that it's when should you consider a joy when you encounter various trials. Why is answered by verse three and. If you were able to get into a little more technical work in the Greek, see, this is one of those places where you have an ing word, which is a participle, and participles that modify verbs. Uh, so this goes back to consider also. It's, it's the whole phrase, but technically this is an adverbial participle, so it's modifying consider the verb. Um, and there are various ways in which an adverbial participle is used. This is cause. One of the things you look at within a structure of a sense is cause and effect. So the effect is consider a joy. The cause is because you know something. Uh, translators sometimes frequently don't uh, indicate the specificity of, a, of, a, um, of an adverbial participle. They just leave it general and that's for anybody who pastor to exegete from the pulpit and clarify that. So this is your first thought, is that we're to count it all joy. When? When you encounter various trials. Why? Because we know something, or it could be how can we do that? Because you know something that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Then we have the fourth verse. What? What do you see about the connection between the fourth verse 
and the third verse. First of all, you have a connector, the word and. Um, and, uh, so we have a, um, let me see if I can grab this, pull the whole thing back up here. And, what is it connecting? Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy, because you have a command to consider it all joy. And in addition, uh, you are to let endurance have its perfect result. So we can uh, drop this down here as our main main. Clause, let endurance have its perfect result, is going to be our independent clause. So we have now identified, and then we have a result clause here. So we can drag this over here, have its perfect result. Uh, the result of have, letting, it, letting endurance have its per- perfect result is so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So see, what we have here is, is a structure that in verses 2 through 4, there are two basic ideas, to count a joy and uh, let endurance have its perfect result. Now, there's a connection here in verse 4. It talks about endurance, which is the last word in verse 3. So verse 4 is expanding on this idea. So technically, this is going to be, can I move that? No, I lost that, that doesn't matter. Um, is going to be developing uh, more uh, this idea. It's a stair step. Consider joy because you know that faith produces endurance and then let endurance. So it's developing that idea out of verse 2. First you develop endurance, then endurance produces uh, a perfect result so that you may be complete perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's the, the, the main idea here is to count it joy when you uh, hit various trials. That's the main idea. This is going to present a main theme throughout uh, the epistle of James. This is the background. It's really answering, the rest of the book of James is really answering how do we do this and under what circumstance do we do this and that's what verse 19 is, how verse 19 is going to structure uh, the rest of the rest of the epistle. So now we've done one one verse. Now we go on, and uh, this is going to challenge me. We, we want to go to the next paragraph, and now we're going to insert James 1, 5 to 8. There we go. And that shows up down here. Now I'm going to expand this so it's a little easier to read. And then I'm going to... um, Yeah, those are tools you can use if you want to structure a diagram and do a more technical diagram. Okay. Now, verse 5, there's a paragraph break. Most of the Greek texts break the paragraph there. How does verse 5, how is this paragraph going to relate to the previous paragraph? As a contrast. 
There's, it, it looks like a contrast, but... Well, it's, it's, a, it's an addition to. Yeah, it's more of an in addition to. Uh, the, the Greek, there's not, not a hard contrastive term. But it's a poor choice of words. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it could be translated now. Uh, now, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Because uh, it's developing the idea. How do, you know it's de- what, 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 how do you know it's developing an idea in the previous paragraph? Because of the conjunction. No. What's the what's what's the fifth word, sixth word in verse five? Wisdom. Lack. Lack. What's do you have and you have lacking in nothing in verse four? That's your connection. So you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wait a minute, I think I'm missing something. I'm having a hard time going through this trial. What do you mean God, God's provided and, and, I'm, and I lack nothing? Well, if you lack wisdom, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the application of what you've learned in the Word to particular situations. So if you lack wisdom, this isn't abstract knowledge. Like when I was in high school, I thought, you know, that God would help me pass my chemistry final. It's not lacking knowledge, it's lacking wisdom. And wisdom in context is how to apply Scripture to the, con- to, to the t- trial or testing that I'm going through. So the contrast is, 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 is but. And then we have the next clause, which is, if any of you lacks wisdom. What kind of clause is that? It's, it's dependent and conditional. It expresses an if circumstance. If anyone lacks wisdom, and then what are you supposed to do? Let him ask of God. Okay? Let him ask of God. And then we have who gives to all generously and without reproach. Is that a dependent or independent clause? Dependent clause. It's dependent. It's a relative. It begins with a relative pronoun who, so that's referring to God who gives all to all generously and without reproach, and let him ask. So this refers to the result of asking of God. Ask, and it will be given to him. Then verse six begins but he must ask in faith without any doubting. So what do, how does verse 6 relate to verse 5? Okay, let's go back here. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's one sentence. So verse 6 is another independent sentence. It gives the conditions for the asking. asking. Yeah. So it's going to get, start just, uh, giving conditions for the asking. Uh, but he must ask in faith. So is this a dependent or independent clause? He must ask in faith. It's going to be independent. He must ask in faith without any doubting. So that's going to further define faith. Without any doubting. And then we have the word for, which is going to explain why he must ask in faith without any doubting. For, and then we have an illustration, the one who doubts 
is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Okay, if we look at verses 5 and 6, what are, are, are there any technical terms? Faith, wisdom. Wisdom, faith. Are there any other, any significant terms? Uh, doubting. Doubting. Yeah, I'd say uh, generously. generously without reproach. Those are key terms that you'd want to look at. Uh, now, any terms in here that are anything in here used figuratively? Like the sort um, yeah, like the sea, the sea analogy. Yeah, the, the, you have an, an illustration of the one who doubts is like. You have a simile. Right, it's a simile. Simile uses, uh, is, a, is a stated comparison using. Uh, as or like, so it's a comparison. The doubting one is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And then we have a principle here for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, the four here, let's go back and look at, I want to look at something here. Uh, six is a sentence, um, <clears throat> seven and eight is a sentence together. Uh, for that man explains uh, the illustration and applies it. Uh, for that man ought not to res- expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, uh, For that man ought not to expect. Is that a dependent or independent clause? That man ought not to expect. Isn't it the whole... uh... Yeah, see, this is why... But sometimes you just, the Greek, I mean, the English just gets. Um, oh, well, now we understand it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all Greek to uh, me. Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be half that's English. Go back to the perfect. There's two perfects okay. and a complete. Are see, that man ought to expect. Here you have, see, this is the value of an interlinear like this. this the, the number here is going to tell you this is your finite verb, ought not to expect. It has a subject, and the, the clause is that man ought not to expect. That's your independent clause. Because your independent clause is going to have a finite verb, and it's going to have a stated subject. That man ought not to expect. That he will receive anything from the Lord is uh, a dependent clause. It's And the Greek here is the, starts with haughty. This is an explanatory uh, word. So it is explaining why he shouldn't need to expect. And then uh, the l- verse 8 is sort of an, uh, a dependent clause that, just so- that, that describes the man. Uh, see, being, does, there's no corresponding word in, in the uh, Greek. So just a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So it's simply an adjecti- two adjectival uh, fra- a, a, a phrase and then a clause uh, that describe that man. So this is your 
uh, independent clause here, that man ought not to expect. That man, that man that, that ought not to expect anything. Well, anything would close it. That would that close it. I know that that that, that fills it out, but that's your that's your main. You you have to have an independent clause. You don't have a sentence without an independent clause, and the independent clause is composed of your subject and your finite verb. So that man, that's your subject. That man, and that's your verb. That man ought not to expect. Now that see it 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 calls for an object which is how the, the uh, hottie clause functions as the object of what he ought to expect. But that's, it's awkward in English, but, but that's your essence of your independent clause because it's a uh, finite, your, your finite verb and your, um, uh, and, and a subject. And that man is, is just, that is not a, uh, this isn't a, a demonstrative pronoun here. It is just a, a, a definer of, of the man. So uh, as a, uh, this man, I mean, it's not a relative or purpose clause. Uh, it's a demonstrative. It is a demonstrative pronoun. I got that back backwards. It's a demonstrative pronoun that modifies man, this man or that man. Um, and so that's your, your subject ought not to expect. And we just add the word something because it calls for that, but that's your that's your independent clause right there. That he will, that because of the grammar here in the Greek, that hottie clause is expressing the object of the verb. Uh, and it really doesn't make sense, uh, but it's still that man ought, we could say that man ought not to have an expectation. Okay? So that, when we go back to our diagram, uh, that man ought not to expect, and then that comes under the expect because it's defining what it will uh, describe, and then being a double-minded man would go back over over this way. I lost it. Would go. We would. Uh, I don't know why that won't drag. Because, and I would put it back over here because it's describing the man. He's double-minded, and that defines unstable in all his ways. I don't know why I'm having trouble getting this to go further down. There we go. There. The, du- the, the Unstable in all his ways defines a double-minded man. So now the next step... As we close out, the next step would be to uh, come up with a a title for verses two through four, and then a title for verses five through eight. So, what I want you to do next time is uh, for reading through the text. We're going to read twelve, thirteen, and fourteen in the textbook, and I want you to make a list of all the paragraphs in James and start working through those and writing down a title or summary sentence of each paragraph, just in your own words. Now, I'm going to warn you about this. This is difficult. This is, this is a little challenging to do this. 
But the reason it's challenging is because you don't know enough about the book yet. But this is how you go through the process of learning the book. When I do a a detailed study of a book like this, I will go through this process, and then I often say when I finish teaching a book, when I finish teaching Revelation or John, now I know this book. I'm going to go back and teach it again because it's this constant process of, of, of refining and learning as we go through the details of the text where we go from the details back up to the big picture, back down to the details. And so initially, this is like you're doing an initial flyover of James. And what you're going to do is you're going to write down uh, a, a paragraph or, I mean, a, a, a ver, uh, just a short title or sentence summarizing each paragraph. And as we go through our study and we get more and more detailed in, in, in terms of the study, you go back and you're going to change it. You say, well, I started off with the completely wrong idea. And that's okay because we all do that. That's the process of learning that's, that's drilling down. And, and in the process of reading it over and over again, uh, this is how you become familiar with the book and you, you, you correct yourself. It's, it's how you, we go through the book, and we may, you may hear somebody saying, well, you know, I really didn't understand that verse until I'd read it a hundred times. Well, that's the, that's the process. We all go through that. Just reading it once or twice just doesn't get you there. And so this is forcing you to read it more specifically, getting you to think about it in a more detailed way when you have to take it and put it then into your own words and then you come back and you'll hear me talk about it and you'll go, well, that really wasn't right. I didn't get it right the first time. And then so there's this constant correction as you work through that, uh, work through that process. Okay, so start just write down a list of like one, one is one paragraph, one, two through four is another one, uh, eight through nine. Just work all the way through the book, make your two or three page sheet and listing that. And then you're going to write out sort of a title for each, each, um, each paragraph. Any questions? Yeah. yeah. Two through four. That's not how my Bible is paragraphed. Are, how, we, are we going how, finding each sentence? How, no. How is your Bible paragraphed? You've got a uh, college social study Bible? Yeah. How does it paragraph it? It goes, uh, it's, it's uh, two through it's, uh, two through eight. Okay. Yeah, there's some, there's some English. English Translation, just work with whatever your, your English Bible has. Um, there are some differences uh, in those. Um, the New American Standard paragraphs it that way. Um, I mean, paragraphs 2 through 4 is a paragraph, and 5 through 8 is another paragraph. But I believe when I looked at this the other day, uh, the New King James really doesn't paragraph it. Um, some, some, I looked at some other versions that paragraph it a little differently, so don't, don't worry about that. When, I, when I'm talking and working with pastors who are working with the, with, the, uh, uh, with the Greek text, I have them look at how the Greek text paragraphs it. But you don't have that as a... Because that's a better paragraphing than what you find in your English Bibles because a lot of times English Bibles try to... Uh, structure it for English readers and simplifying it for English readers. What's your translation in that? Uh, in uh, New, American, I mean, uh, New King James. 
New King James. Yeah, I think that's how the New King James structures it is five through eight. I mean, uh, two through eight is one paragraph. But um, uh, don't worry about that so much. You just go with however your English Bible is, is, is structured. Okay? Yeah, Jeff. Uh, real quick, could you just speak quickly to but? Because when we hear but in the English, in my mind, it means... This is in contrast to the statement I just made. Right, right. There's, there's, there's a couple of different words that are used in, in Greek for, for that are translated but in English. One is the Greek word Allah, which is a hard contrast. And another is the word de, which is the one we have here, which is sort of a soft, soft contrast, or it's going from this to the next step in logic. So you've done this, now this. And so de can be translated and, now, or but. And that's what you have, uh, that's what you have at the beginning of verse, uh, of verse five. Here's your de. You can probably pick that out even though you don't know Greek. And this is a de right here. Uh, the reason it's not at the beginning of the sentence is that that's just a rule of Greek grammar that that word always comes second in the sentence. Why is it translated but instead of and or therefore? And, and as that, a was a, that was a translator's decision. Okay. This and is why it's... It throw you off when you're reading the English, you know. Yeah, and, and those are some ways when you get more technical, this is why sometimes it's helpful to pick up on these, these kinds of differences. When you have, um, like open up the text comparison here. Whoa. And we go to James 1, um, what verse was that, 5? Okay, um, New King James just doesn't even indicate that there's a, that there's a transitional word there at all. Uh, New American Standard translates it but, NET translates it but, NIV leaves it out. Uh, so is the NRSVs, ESV. And the Lexham English Bible uh, translates it now, which I think is is the best translation. So that's why it's it's useful at times to to have a those parallel uh, Bibles. And if you have a computer program, as we progress and we're and we're doing our out doing our own Bible study now, are you going to give us some tools to kind of figure out when it's actually? Well, if you get an interlinear. Okay. A Greek and Linear New Testament, then then you can look at that. Okay. Is it okay if we use tools? Because somebody yeah. gave me a, one of your papers today that from off the table that says said you didn't want us using tools. Well, not not when we're just doing observations on things. But if you need, if you want to look like for observation, you want to look. Well, I want to see what the Greek word is here. Like perfect, perfect. Yeah, if, yeah. If you want to, you know, looking, you know, you, if, if you're looking, if you're using a tool to discover, try to find out what the what the what the Greek word is there. That's fine. I mean, I, by tools, I mean I don't want you looking at commentaries. Okay. okay. Can uh, we look at your commentaries? <laughs> go to my commentary. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? All right. I'll see you all next time, and hopefully next time I'll be over this. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had together, and we just pray that you uh, help each of us as we continue to read and study to just open the text, open our eyes so that we can see what, what you've revealed to us. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.